In the holy name of Jesus, amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. I'm certain about the beginning, and I'm certain about forever. But as we sang this repeatedly last week, as Epiphany gave way to Transfiguration, I wondered about the is now. If there is a question about it, then this should be the perfect season. Jesus Christ comes to teach about the glory of the kingdom of God, this glory that we speak of when we say glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. Jesus comes to speak about the glory of the kingdom of God, and today the disciples seem ready to hear. Though we should be cautious, as there was a misfire at the end of Mark chapter 8. Jesus began to teach them then in Mark chapter 8 what it meant for him to be Messiah and what kind of glory he would have. It was the glory of God taking flesh and then going to the cross, going up to Jerusalem to be scourged, to be killed, to atone for the sins of the world, to die. For that, Peter rebuked Jesus. This will never happen to you. That is no way for a Messiah to act. And in response, Jesus rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. That is no way for a disciple to talk. And so we have confrontation and we have contention in the church. Not much glory in that. It seems to us it's Jesus' fault. It's Peter's fault. Everything divided. Now we are six days later in the text, Mark chapter 9. And in the gospel for today, Peter has another chance. Jesus takes Peter and James and John up a mountain to teach them about the glory of the kingdom of God. And suddenly on that mountain, Jesus is morphed. Jesus glistens. He is bright in an absolutely supernatural way. And there beside him are Elijah and Moses, the law and the prophets, the psalm of the Old Testament. And he speaks with them about his exodus. That is the word that St. Luke uses because he wants to tie what Jesus is doing to how to what Israel was doing. Israel had its exodus out of slavery into the promised land. You heard in the Old Testament how Elijah had his exodus from earth to heaven, and now Jesus speaks of his own exodus, but it will be an exodus by way of his cross. To confirm all that, suddenly there is a cloud that descends, and the voice that spoke at his baptism speaks again with similar words. The same voice that named him suffering servant and beloved son now says again to those who will listen, to those who would be disciples. The voice says, this is my son. Listen to him. And suddenly it all goes away. Now this time, will it be a misfire? 
or will they choose to follow? In that story, there are all sorts of clues for you, for me, and for the disciples. First off, they're up the mountain. And you all know from reading your Bibles that when the Lord wants to make a point with his people, he often takes them up a mountain. So Abraham went up Mount Moriah when it was time to sacrifice Isaac. And Moses went up Mount Sinai when it was time to receive the ten words. And Elijah went up Mount Horeb to be strengthened for his exodus, which you heard about today. And the Israelites, of course, were gathered into the presence of God in the temple on holy Mount Zion. In the Old Testament, too, the glory of God often comes by way of a bright cloud. While Moses was up the mountain getting the ten words, you remember it was lightning and smoke the brightness of that cloud which was reflected in his face when he came down. Also the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, was covered by a bright cloud whenever God was there present, and he used that bright cloud to guide them. Also, when the Lord put himself into the temple on Mount Zion, he put himself there by way of a bright cloud, a touchable, tangible way to know that he was home. And of course, then, when Elijah and Moses show up, the greatest teacher of the Torah and the greatest prophet of Israel, it is the stamp of approval from the Heavenly Father, just so nobody misses what's going on. So it's all there for you this morning, up the mountain, bright cloud, law and prophets, and the Messiah himself. The only question is whether or not there will be a misfire Once again, Peter does not disappoint. Immediately, he interrupts all that's going on. If we could just stay here forever, we could build three tents, life would be perfect. And of course, Peter has missed the point that the only tent he'll ever need is Jesus, who tents among us, John 1, 14. We are so like Peter so brave and so scared and so impulsive all at the same time. And that causes us then to interrupt our Lord and to tell him the sort of Lord he ought to be. We are better at talking than listening. And we have our own ideas about what sort of God we ought to have. It's in us and we can't get rid of it. It is there in every generation. It's particularly obvious in ours. It's Tom Wolfe who mocks us as the me generation. Christopher Lesh who diagnoses us as a narcissistic society. We are not just a generation, but a culture, a world, where we put ourselves at the center and try to draw everything into our orbit. We are a world, a nation, a society, a congregation more interested in being satisfied than being saved. Too often we judge the world by whether it pleases us, soothes us, pampers and rewards us, flatters and entertains us, whether or not it excites us. So now Jesus comes today to reveal the glory of the kingdom of God 
Jesus comes today to bring holiness from heaven to earth. And he does that by saying that we ought to deny ourselves and pick up our crosses and follow him all the way to Jerusalem where he will suffer and die. He says to us that we should reject this adulterous and perverse generation and live as his disciples. He says that what you really should be all about, and I too, is other folk. That we ought to make our way away from those three tents that Peter proposes and back down the mountain in love for others, acts of mercy, words of witness. Peter flinches. And we lose interest. And I wonder if there's a cure. The cure is not to make the church more like the world. The church will always be irrelevant to a culture that cannot see beyond its own nose. The church will always fail those who count it as therapy to make them feel better. The church will always be boring for those whose first question is, what's in it for me? The church will always be absurd for those who are so busy with themselves, their own needs, their own truths, that they see no neighbor beside them and no God above them. In the eyes of a self-seeking, self-saving, self-authenticating, and self-glorifying culture, the cross is just what Paul said it was in 1 Corinthians. It is utter and abject foolishness. And the church is scandalously useless. Is there a cure? Well, it's not in the voice of Peter. Let's stay here. If there is a cure, it is in the heavenly voice of the Father. This is my beloved Son. Keep on listening to Him. Keep on obeying Him. You want glory? You want church? You want truth? It is there in this one who tents among you. This is my son incarnate. He is the center of history. He is the focus of the universe. And he bears the clearest, fullest picture of what heaven is like. The clearest, fullest picture of what the Holy Trinity is. The clearest, fullest picture of what you all were meant for. He alone is glory and he shows you that glory on the cross. I know the church tries. So often the church wants to be relevant, edgy, subversive, revolutionary. And that is a good thing. That is what the church ought to be, so long as it does it not in the way of the world, but in the way of heavenly glory. Anytime the church tries to do its business by mimicking culture, it goes wrong. You might have seen the Wall Street Journal Friday, fourth section, second to last page, bottom on the right. Always an article about religion. This week it was about the emergent church. Great article. It talks to you about how teenagers and young adults have no interest in singing Kumbaya or what we would count as contemporary songs. You know those from the 60s and the 70s. What interests them most is... Mystery, community, monasticism, 
fasting, prayer, discipline, obedience. The trouble is that they've blogged themselves their own Jesus. The only thing they're not interested in is doctrine. And so they have a Jesus who looks startlingly unlike anything the church has ever seen. He's a Jesus in their own image, which is no Jesus at all. They have their own sort of glorified Jesus, and it is not a Jesus that saves. So the emergent church, for all its good intentions, even in the ancient fathers, is unreliable because they have created a God in their own image. No time to sit and listen and have the God that the Father intends to be and give. So here we mean to do the opposite. While we do mean to be what Jesus is, edgy, revolutionary, subversive, relevant, the most subversive thing we can do is sing the Kyrie and the Alleluia and the Agnus Dei and the Sanctus. Why? Because that is absolutely counter-cultural, even counter-emergent church. It puts Jesus Christ at the center and spins everything into his orbit. It is not about you or about me as captain, master, or chief. It doesn't say anything about our thoughts or feelings or opinions. Instead, it puts Christ first as word made flesh, as revelation of glory, as ultimate thing, as God that saves, as Savior, Lord, and King, the most relevant, edgy, subversive, revolutionary thing we can do today is to sing the Alleluia and then to put it away for a season in penitence for our sins, confessing that we are broken and no gods at all, that the only way that we come into God's presence is if there is an atonement that forgives us, makes us worthy, and makes us safe. That would be revolutionary. If you really want to be a Christian, to have Christ at the center of your life, then sit down and be still and stop interrupting him. And then stand up and move on wherever he leads. To be forgiven and to be faithful and to take your lumps even as he takes his and then to listen again and to obey and to live and die in the search for truth. In fact, in the search for he who is truth incarnate with a capital T. To come near to the one whose face is so bright that the angels hide their faces. To see him face to face like Moses on the mountain and live. If you really want that, if you are really serious about being a Christian and not just making all the right noises, if you are willing to take that risk to meet the living God without the need to control him and so to make him your enemy, if you are willing to have him as your master, to be his disciple and not just another hanger-on, the world is filled with hanger-ons, 
If you want to be at the edge of life, if you want a life that matters and is good for eternity, if you want to be awash in grace and forgiveness, if you want to know glory, then this is the right place. Because today glory is on the mountain, but in a few days he moves. And we will see him go by way of ashes and Lent to Monday, Thursday and death and rest in the tomb and recreation on the eighth day and Easter forgiveness and presence with us by way of his Holy Spirit after his ascension. We will learn to rejoice in the two men glistening in white in his tomb. Is it Elijah and Moses back for a second round? That's how Luke would prompt us. And they sending us out to do some good, to be his witnesses, to act in mercy, to spread the gospel, to grow his kingdom, and for his glory, not for ours. If you want all of that, then this is the place for you. This is a place where the Lord himself, the Son of God, has lit today, where he is here to forgive you with his body and blood, to wash you, to meet you, to feed you, to correct you, to listen to you, to speak to you to love you, to gather you, to make you his own, to draw you near, to never leave, to have good use of you on his holy mountain. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, that bit is sure and will be forever, that too. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it is now, that certain too. He here for you. Happy Lent. All is well. In the holy name of Jesus. Amen.